0: Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where
1: isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison.
2: It depends who's telling the story I suppose, the prisoners would have one view, the people who
1: work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh,
3: where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR.
0: We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution.
4: Hello and welcome to the Do and Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And a warning that there may be audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have died. First coming up on the show, we're gonna be speaking with Auntie Nell Speed. And we've had some really great yarns off air. She's a First Nations woman who has worked in a variety of health settings. She's um, been a lecturer at uni in schools of health and medicine and 10-year board member on local health district. Um, she's also a consultant and educator of, of the culture, the cultural come the medium. And we'll be speaking with Auntie Nell very soon about a very, very important topic. This is stage four lockdown in Victoria and also New South Wales. And Auntie will tell you what land she's from. I'll I'll, I'll have her introduce herself shortly but we're going to be speaking with her about health and also about how the gap hasn't been closed between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people and we'll also speak with her really about the growing fears that Aboriginal communities particularly in regional places are under resourced and how are they coping with the pandemic what's happening with all the health stuff there so we'll be speaking with her very soon a delightful person to speak to. I'm really looking forward to it. And then after that we'll be speaking with Karen Fletcher who is a senior lawyer and prison advocate from the uh, sorry Fitzroy Legal Service and we'll be speaking with her very soon about what's happening in prisons and looking at coronavirus and how do we prevent infection in prisons and what are the figures because I was actually speaking with Karen off air and we're not even sure what the figures are and what corrections is doing about that. So yeah, I will be speaking with Auntie Nell shortly. Hello Auntie Nell, welcome to the program.
2: Uh, good morning and thank you.
4: It's lovely to have you. First up, Auntie, would you just be able to tell listeners what land you're from and, and where you are at the moment?
2: Okay, so I am Biripai Dungadi. And I, at the moment, I live on Nagalwa land. Thank you so
4: much. So, Nell, we've been talking a lot about health and First Nations people and, and also we're in the middle of a pandemic, as you know. Can you just t- talk to us about some, some of your work and, and some of your, your discoveries, I suppose, and, and what's happening for you as, as a woman with lived experience of, of being First Nations?
2: Okay, um so what's happening in the health thing I suppose we're we're talking about the close the gap issues um, it isn't really close the gap because the gap's getting wider um, so maybe they need to think of a name change but um, yep, yep. the um, it's not it's not working there's a lot of money pumped into various programs and look some of them we've had great success with um, and others we haven't but if you're um if you're a sector like a health sector, you can only impact on the close the gap as far as health um, issues are you don't have any say over some of the other social determinants like the housing uh the education the employment um and things like that so what we really need to be doing is instead of just channeling money into uh one sector to do one part of it we need to um, encourage those sectors to engage with other sectors so that we can have connecting uh... programs and and we can follow on and all contribute to the same thing which is the health of better health of aboriginal people so um... an example uh... that i could give you is um... the uh, health district um, Uh, can employ Aboriginal people and um, the the higher the employment, um, not only means Aboriginal people are able to um, engage in society, but it also means that representation in the hospital. Our peoples going to these services are are, are more culturally, uh, feel culturally safe. Um, So if we had um, a program that worked on employment and in the health thing and we worked on, um, say, uh, smoking in young Aboriginal women who are pregnant. Um, we can only do so much in smoking to help them, but there's a program that has engaged, the health district has engaged with a, an NGO, which is a social housing group, to work on how smoking, how they can both contribute to helping um, Aboriginal people in these social housing things address some of the uh, issues that they have to help them um, with smoking. So that, that's what I mean. If we if if it keeps just getting channeled into one sector, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. It's the same with um, with the justice department. The people that are in in jail with um, say diabetes um, while they're in jail, they're getting um, a bed they're getting regular food they're getting um <coughs> excuse me Sorry? medical treatment when they come out of jail um, then the continuity of care uh sort of uh, is is in a disarray, and it 's all about red tape and paper, so I do know of a health district that has worked with justice to try and um resolve this. This issue, and and it's making improvements to Aboriginal people's lives. So while they can channel money into it and say we're helping Aboriginal people, unless that help is constructive and and um, helping to um, promote the other social determinants, then you know, like it's it's just like a, a black hole.
4: It really is, isn't it, um, Annie you know, Nell? Because really. When you really look at, it, Aboriginal people are very much over-incarcerated. And I'm wondering, too, historically, Aboriginal women were were under a lot of genocide and colonisation, weren't they? In particular, when they were having their babies.
2: Uh, look, um, I, I remember my mother talking to me about being in a hospital where um, she refused to be inside. And... Um, because the Aboriginal women were put on the verandas to have their children. Um, You know, like um, Aboriginal people, I think, with the health system, a lot of them, um, it was a place you went to die, really, um, because it, it didn't have a very good reputation for looking after Aboriginal people. Might I say, that has improved a lot, and And there is even in the last ten years, I have seen wonderful examples in health of um, you know aboriginal culture being embraced and and becoming a, a whole of organization um a whole of organization uh, issue rather than just not but look we we had it terrible our health before colonization there, there's so many documents that Tell about the good health of Aboriginal people. We had, you know, we had a great diet, we had uh, a good, a good environment, and we were healthy. And it wasn't until colonization that the the impacts on our health started to come. So in the in the first instance, we had things like smallpox and measles and um, even the common cold and things like that. That you know, just desecrated a lot of our um, our people when they first arrived. And we haven't been able to get an equitable platform
4: since colonisation. So, um, And a lot of people are scared to go to the hospitals, aren't they? Um, look,
2: I think so. I think that's about education and that, though. Um, and I think it's also about the, the hospital's the environment they provide, and and you know their um, their their engagement with Aboriginal people, so that Aboriginal people don't um, neglect their health by that
4: fear. Well, that's right, and I suppose even in prison, there there would be quite a lot of um, gaps, significant gaps with health. I, I don't believe from some of the people that I've spoken that have left prison. Um, particularly Aboriginal people, sometimes they don't get what they need in prison health-wise in terms of medication or ongoing ongoing um, health assessments. Uh, look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know about w- w- whether they are able to get
2: them or not. No, 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 that's but OK. I, I just wanted that,
4: you to know. Yeah,
2: yeah, I do know that the, um, you know, the mental health aspect in prison oh. with our, with our, uh, our rates, and unfortunately our women are actually... Um, more in, uh, incarcerated than our men these days. So um, it's not getting better.
4: It's Correct. It's just getting worse. That's why I wanted to invite you on, because I felt like we needed to really draw attention to that. And also, do you remember, I, I'm not sure if you remember on the other phone, the phone call, we had a couple of days ago and I was mentioning the coronavirus and there was some, the cases of COVID-19 have gone up Particularly in New South Wales, haven't they? Mm. And I, I wonder about the fact that the highly contagious Delta variant—that's spreading, isn't it—through local First Nations communities, it's and they're fitting. they're vulnerable, aren't they, and under resourced. What What do you think mm. about that? Yes. Look, not only not only Aboriginal people
2: are vulnerable out here in our rural areas.
4: we yes.
2: are, We are too. So it's. It, and it is rampaging through um, places like Dubbo, and uh, I think I heard there were two thirds of Dubbo in self isolation. Um, this this didn't need to happen. We had we had a very enviable position where we had no COVID, and now that it's um, come to the regional areas, um, the impact of it on our on our Health services on our communities, on our um, workforce, um, and even on on what we have available to support the health workers out there, like ventilators and and things like that. That they're just not available. It's just not a case we can
4: um, we can do anything about. Why do you think the ventilators aren't available? well
2: because they're, they're um you know health service has to has to be prepared you can't just say oh put a put a ventilator in there you have to yeah. have have a ventilator that's up to a standard you have to have um the people that are using it trained you have to have um the workforce to be able to um, monitor it and and treat the patient um the the thing is rural areas um, there, there are other issues that, that impact on the health. There's distance, uh, there's workforce, there's, um, you know, communities that have got overcrowding, there's um, uh, low employment rates, um, high health issues. And at the best of times, it is managing. When you have a pandemic on top of that, um, there is just no plan in place to to deal with it.
4: The federal government really needs to, to step up.
2: Look, I, I'm very disappointed about the amount of um, supply. I'm very disappointed about um, people having access to it and and um, able to um, to be have have good. Uh, simple um, education about it instead of the the bits and pieces approach that's coming along. I I understand that it's a pandemic and we've never had one quite like this before but um, those are are just basic community things that you need to do for a community.
4: Absolutely and we certainly don't want it to spread. I mean, wouldn't you agree that Aboriginal people have are dying younger than non-Indigenous people. Yes,
2: that, and the other thing is, um, this this COVID affects uh, elderly people a lot more than children. At this stage, is is the uh, you know the general census. So in in Aboriginal communities, we only have very few elders, and and so if it if it impacts on our communities and. And wipes out all our elders. That that's a huge gap in our cultural uh, heritage that that we are, you know, we are missing out on. And in, in non-Aboriginal communities, the the uh, elderly population is is a lot larger than their their children's one. But the Aboriginal one's actually flipped upside down, and and we're we're different. So, um,
4: yes, I'm very concerned about our elders.
2: Um, Absolutely,
4: and you mentioned your mum. So, so your mum—she is she a member of the stolen generation? My mum and my brother were both uh, stolen generation. Right, and and you mentioned how your mum was telling you that women had to be on the veranda. You mean on the veranda at the hospital? Yes, that is awful. Um that is the way it was.
2: Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of instances where you could go through and see that, you know, um, how Aboriginal people were treated. But, um, I live in faith and hope and I work every day to try and um, um, provide that uh, opportunity to educate and engage with people so that they get a better understanding of um, aboriginal people and their and their health and then um, hopefully um,
4: work and and come up with good solutions which um absolutely and, and i'm hoping the vaccine rollout is is that a bit slow in the regional communities or how, how's that going
2: look that's <laughs> that that's been the bane of my existence lately trying to get um access to vaccinations um i myself had to travel um six hours or seven hours to get to newcastle to get mine um my husband and i had he had to travel two hours to uh, a small medical center up here because our local um towns um the the, the doctors weren't um weren't Registered or able to, or set up, or
4: um,
2: to do um, vaccination. So, um, and I've had people who've rung me up, and I've somehow managed to get them into places just to um, try and allay their fears. Because the pandemic's getting closer and closer to these communities, and these people are are not—it's not any easier for them to get access. So. Um, it might be easy in Sydney where you can just roll up to a um, to a, a site or a hub, but it, it's not that easy in rural communities. And you have to remember that we have a lot of small towns and they've got to travel. You know, like 100 k's is probably just trip to town or 50 k's. So they've got to <coughs> you know leave their leave their home and work. Um, That's right. And go to it. There's there's no compensation for them to take the time off. They've got to uh, seek it out themselves. Um, And there's no competent reporting as to where these um, vaccines are available. And there's no choice for people, um, for whether they have Pfizer or AstraZeneca. Um, So that makes it
4: um, very difficult as well. It really is quite appalling. Auntie, thank you so much for coming onto the program. we kind of—I'm going to be interviewing um, Karen Fletcher soon from from Victoria about what's happening in prisons. But I'm so happy that you that you've been able to come on. Would you like to come back another time, sometime soon? I would love that, Don. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm hoping I can call you again. Okay, that's fine. Thanks so much. Take care. My pleasure.
2: Safe travels.
3: You too. Bye. <laughs> Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter
0: love comes your way what can i say you feel the pain you change your way the maritime union of australia is pleased to announce the struggles that made us poster design prize with a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events, or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. And sisters, the on. The the song song.
3: Say, wanganjiri. Wanganjiri. it means we're all one. We're all in this together. We're like one big family and we've got to look after each other. we got to support each other. And that's what this song's about. We hope you guys enjoy it and we can't wait to rock out for you guys wherever it may be in the future. Thank you. <laughs> See ya. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton, and I listen to 3CR and I hope
0: you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its Radiothon
4: because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR.
0: And
4: you're back with the Doing Time show and you just heard a song by King Stingray, and the song is called Milka Munna. And before that, you heard an interview with Auntie Nell Speed, who was talking about the coronavirus and First Nations people and the very under-resourced regional areas. Next up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Karen Fletcher from Fitzroy Community Legal Centre. And Karen has, is a senior lawyer and has done prison advocacy as well with adult prisoners. And we're going to be speaking with her about the coronavirus and talking to her really about how do we prevent corona virus infections in prison what's happening and what are the figures because i think they're lost hello karen welcome to the program hi marissa nice to be here it's lovely to have you now i imagine that uh, it must be doubly difficult for people in prison um, during the pandemic and in particular during the stage four lockdown. Can you talk to us about what's going on at the moment in prisons with corona and, and what what you think are some of the, the problems and issues in regarding the, the prevention of infection?
1: Yeah, well, we're 18 months in and as you say, we're still in stage four lockdowns and I think everybody is feeling it. Um just the length of this period of time that we've been subjected to all these restrictions on the outside, 18 months. On the inside, of course, as you said, it is worse. Um, I mean, obviously already the people in there are subject to a lot of restrictions and this epidemic has taken away so many of the things that just keep people going inside. And in particular, uh, their personal visits with family and loved ones. probably the biggest loss that we hear our clients, who are people in prison, talk about. Uh, And there have been, you know, periods over the last 18 months where there have been able to be some personal visits, but then they get snatched away again every time there's an outbreak, and that's heartbreaking. Some people make it into the car park, you know, for a visit, and then are told it's not happening today because of COVID. Uh, and that's oh, happens. that's that's awful. So yeah. the,
4: the visit's organised and then when they're in the car park, they get told to go home? That's
1: right. And then that's particularly, you know, a, the issue, a, a big issue for um, visits with kids. Uh, there's lots of problems arranging visits with kids and we've got clients who haven't seen their kids for months and months and months because of COVID but also because of the usual, uh, you know, bureaucratic Requirements around organising kids visits where kids are in kinship care or or state care uh, and trying to get an apartment to organise visits. Um, All of that stuff is just even more difficult. It's already difficult, but it's even more difficult during COVID. So the emotional toll on people inside uh, trying to talk to family and friends is really heartbreaking
4: it would be absolutely dreadful and I imagine the, the mental health um, problems
1: would be skyrocketing. That's right. Now, we don't have figures on that, um, but I think that would be important for us to know uh, the kind of mental health issues that people are facing. Some of them we've heard are quite serious with self-harm increasing inside the prisons uh, and serious struggles uh, with people's mental health. I think that's particularly the case when there's sort of promises made that, you know, you'll get a visit or you'll get, say, a tablet that you can visit family and friends, you know, have a video visit and then that's taken, you know, for one reason or another that's taken away. We heard recently at Dame Phyllis that there was a whole bunch of video visits cancelled one day because um, there was a, a scare that prison officers had been in a tier one exposure site, a gym near the, near the prison. So they locked everybody down completely for the day and didn't organise any, even any video visits. So people who'd had video visits booked were cancelled. And this is the kind of thing that we're just hearing all the time. You know, people hanging on to the prospect of having some communication with family and friends and um, being disappointed. And that's uh, really a risk for people's mental health. I mean, seriously, look,
4: whilst I understand that, you know, uh, we all need to go to the gym and we all need to do things, it, it really is an added responsibility when you're a prison officer
1: because that going to a gym is going to affect the, the whole prison. Yeah, well, my understanding, it was at a time when people were legally able to go to gyms. But, you know, Marissa, I mean, the overriding thing in this whole issue about COVID in prisons is the same as it's been all over the world since the pandemic started, you know, nearly two years ago now, which is that the biggest, most effective uh, public health measure that could be taken to reduce the risk of COVID in prisons is to reduce the number of people in prisons, because they're such high risk settings, as you say, because prison officers and other people who work in prisons are going in and out all the time and they get exposed when there's a you know, a lot of exposure sites, whatever it is at the moment, 600 exposure sites around Victoria. People who work in prisons are just as uh, at risk from those supermarkets and schools and other exposure sites, and if they take it into the prisons, uh, you know, it's an environment, as we've talked about before, where there is virtually no consideration of ventilation. People are not able to socially distance in units, uh, and it's just... You know, as we've seen internationally, it's a tinderbox. If the infection gets inside, then people and including a lot of people with serious health issues, especially um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, people who are so overrepresented in that population are really at risk. So the, the, the most effective thing that can be done is, is reducing the number of people in prison. And that sort of happened in Victoria. Um, there was a reduction last year. I, I mean, up to 2019, prison numbers have been escalating and escalating and escalating in Victoria with these bail laws that are sending people unnecessarily to prison. And we have seen during the pandemic a bit of a reduction in prison populations um, because of consideration of you know how exposed people are going to be to COVID-19 if they're put in prison. Um, but that number's going up again now as the, you know the courts are starting to deal with some of the matters, and and, uh, more people are getting remanded again.
4: Karen, also a particular concern are people that are exiting prison, isn't it, and where there even could be homelessness. How on earth is someone supposed to self-isolate if they haven't got a home? Well, that is a...
1: Yeah, that's a crucial issue. I mean, it's a crucial issue all the time that such a high proportion of people who leave prison don't have accommodation, Um, and that the system for um, giving people access to secure and permanent accommodation is so lacking, you know, that people are just offered maybe three nights in a bad motel or a rooming house, those sorts of things, which is not secure and permanent housing because there's such a lack of public housing in Victoria. where the the state with the lowest per capita um, level of public housing in Australia. Um, And yeah, it's continuing to be a problem. I mean, there's funds around uh, to some agencies to provide some transitional support from prisons, but it's problematic because it's still, you know, sort of corrections funding, people are still subject to sort of a surveillance kind of um, attitude uh, when they leave prison, when really they should be able to access public housing as a a tenant, a long-term secure tenant. If we want people to be able to really uh, keep themselves safe from COVID, then uh, overcrowded rooming houses and crappy motels are not the answer, but they're still still what most people are facing. And that's if they're lucky. Other people are on the street or couch surfing. Karen, I'm I'm conscious
4: that you you need to um, go back on the phone soon for, for your work, but is it okay if I just ask you a couple more questions?
1: Yes, go for it, Marissa. Great, great.
4: Look, I'm not sure if you know of this this particular, uh, what happened last year, but Doing Time Show actually did a, a an interview on a very horrific situation in 2020 when the pandemic first started, and it was in regards to an Aboriginal um, man by the name of Mr. Kennedy um, in Victoria who was was deemed homeless and there were, there were many, many injustices in regards to his court case and the fact that he was arrested while he was just sitting on a park bench. He had nowhere to go. And in the end, everything was OK and family took him in. What do you think about that?
1: Well, it's a story that anybody who has anything to do with the Victorian prison system is very familiar with. There is just not an adequate... Um, system in place to deal with the homelessness problem and homelessness is linked to imprisonment uh, and people are coming out of prison in a worse position than they were when they went in in terms of homelessness because people who do have a lease are losing their lease or their tenancy. Um, You know, it's a really, it's a crisis situation and I'm involved in a campaign called Homes Not Prisons, uh, which I would urge people to have a look at, homesnotprisons.com.au, um, which is calling for a redirection of money, the state budget, away from, you know, $2 billion in a, a couple of budgets ago were, were allocated to building more prisons. And they're spending nearly $200 million expanding the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. Really, that money should be going into the public housing into the construct, a massive construction of public housing and a, and a housing first approach to criminalise people getting access to public housing. Because at the moment, people who have uh, you know criminal histories are getting excluded from a lot of community housing and so-called affordable housing. We need to have a public housing system where there's real support for people um, and that's less expensive than building all these prison cells. Let's spend the money on something that's actually going to make community, the community a safer place, and that's housing, not prisons. Housing, not prisons, indeed. And
4: finally, in regards to the, to the coronavirus figures and about
1: what... We don't even know how many people in prison have had coronavirus, do we, if any? No, we don't have that. And what we're also really concerned about at the moment is that we don't know what the proportion of people in prison who have been vaccinated is. So they've started vaccinate, offering vaccinations to people um, in the last couple of months. And we are asking for information from Corrections. I tried to get it for this interview so I could share it with your listeners, but we haven't been, been able to um, get that information yet like about what proportion of people in prison have... Uh, been vaccinated and whether they're vaccinating offering vaccinations to people that are coming into the system into the police cells and the prisons uh, and when they think they're likely to reach that seventy or eighty percent vaccination coverage in the prisons that might enable you know more uh, personal visits and some lifting some of the restrictions that are currently causing so many problems for people in prison on the outside we we get you know a table on the news every night that shows us what proportion of people in Victoria and all the other states have had one jab, what proportion have had two jabs and how far away we are from reaching, uh, you know, 70 to 80% coverage. We think that that information is really important, even more important in the prison setting because prison is such a high-risk environment for COVID. But, we, yeah, that, that's not public yet. It should be.
4: Because it's never even mentioned in the media. You know, when they say, oh, 70%,
1: I don't think people in prison even even looked at, included. Yeah, and isn't that um, the problem with a lot of this stuff? Like, there's so many issues that involve people who've been criminalised and people in prison, uh, but that, that there's this, and those issues affect everybody in the community in terms of community safety and family and communities. Um, but there's so little coverage of it because, uh, you know, it's just seen as part of the law and order agenda, uh, rather than as being part of the community safety agenda and community wellbeing agenda. And you were speaking before, Karen, about overcrowding and about how, you know, there's so
4: much over-incarceration, particularly of Aboriginal and Torres, Torres Strait Islander peoples. Can you imagine the the ventilation in those prisons? Wouldn't that be a, a, hot bread, a hotbed for coronavirus?
1: Yes, well, that is <laughs> a really important issue in prisons, yeah. like, Last year, we represented a man at Fort Phillip Prison who was at high risk of dying from COVID because he had, um, because he had a heart condition. And what came out in that case was that the, all the risk management measures that were being taken were all sort of about imposing on the prisoners, you know, no visits, no out of cell, reduced out-of-cell time, no programs, all of that stuff. But the really important measures that they needed to be taking, like reducing the number of people in there and getting ventilation, were not being addressed. And in fact, at that time, there was like a denial that ventilation was an issue and that, you know, COVID-19 could be spread uh, by aerosol. Um, It's only really recently that the Victorian government has recognised that aerosol transmission is a real problem. Given that aerosol transmission is a real problem, there should be really careful attention being paid to ventilation in prisons as a high-risk environment. As it is being... You know, they're talking about ventilation in schools, in quarantine hotels, in apartment blocks, and so they should be, but prisons should be really high up on that list for a serious review of the ventilation. So this man was was, uh, was about to die from coronavirus? He was at very high risk if he did contract coronavirus because he had a heart condition. He was in that category, oh. which many people in prison are. Um, so we brought a case in the Supreme Court uh, seeking his release on the basis of the risk of dying but in order for them to um, meet the, the, their duty of care, that they should actually allow him to be in a form of, a, of home detention because he was at such high risk. I guess it was sort of a test case on... Um, the duty of care that's owed to people in in prisons. Um, he wasn't a risk of. Any, he hadn't committed any violent offences. He wasn't a risk of committing violent offences in the community, um, and he had a really great option in terms of a home detention arrangement. So we, we brought a case. Now, at the time, the court held that um, the risk. It, it was during a period where there wasn't a current outbreak, and the um, restrictions were lifted. And the court held that in those circumstances that the duty of care didn't require uh, corrections to allow him to serve home detention. But they did say that if the risk was very high, then that should be a consideration. Um, So, yeah, I I guess it was a test case. The court did order Port Phillip Prison to do a risk assessment uh, about the measures that they were taking at the prison um, to reduce the risk. We weren't very happy with the with the risk assessment that did get done, and in, in particular, it didn't address the issue of ventilation. Um, so that's still a huge issue. That's still pending, is it? No, the case. Well, it may come back on, um, but at the moment, it's uh, the judgment. That, you can have a look at the case online. It's the case of uh, Rowson R O W F O N uh, in the Supreme Court, and it was dealt with last year
4: I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's really a prime example isn't it about how
1: prisoners are neglected yes yes and as you were saying I mean neglected in so many ways uh because the issue is just treated as a law and order matter rather than as a matter that should concern the whole community
0: well we can't really
1: be policing our way out of a pandemic can we? It needs to be really more about health. There needs to be more of a health response as well. I think that's a really important point because that's that's one of the things that's clear in the community. You know, that um, police and soldiers can... The presence of police and soldiers in communities can actually make it less likely that people will get tested and get help, um, which means the pandemic is worse. Uh, And the same... I think the same... Issue applies in the prison context in the sense that all of these restrictions on on people in prison, rather than an emphasis on the state's responsibility to keep people safe, um, uh, you know, has a, uh, a poor effect. Um, yep. in, as you were saying, because people can come out of prison and be homeless, and um, uh, you know, pose yep. a much higher risk to themselves. Um, than they Early. would if there, was, if there was a sort of housing and health attitude rather than a, 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 a policing attitude. And they really should be letting the, 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 the guy out with the heart condition, really? out of prison. Well, yeah, look, our position is that anybody who doesn't pose a risk shouldn't be in prison. Um, and the way that risk is measured, we'll, we could talk about that for a long time as well. But there are a lot of people, particularly um, under these bail laws that require people to prove that they should be on uh, given bail uh even though that half the time they don't even have a lawyer at their bail hearing um but in general terms people committing violence people committing offences no sorry people who haven't uh don't pose a risk to community safety being in a prison context should be out as a covid measure if nothing else i mean it's also Hey, community safety matter, but it's it's a COVID matter that putting people unnecessarily into prison is uh, a high risk um, during a pandemic. Karen, you've been really helpful
4: and, and I'm sure that listeners, particularly the ones that are listening from prison, will be very pleased to hear this interview because I really don't think that there's enough coverage in the media about this. They're too busy reporting on, you know, the violence exhibited by the anti-lockdown thugs, or I'm not going to call them protesters, Um, you know, and and talking about... I mean, it's it's good what they're doing in some ways in terms of the coronavirus, but there really needs to be more in the media um, in terms of impoverished communities. and, And prison is a community, whatever people might say.
1: Yeah, and it has a huge crossover with, as you say... Um, disadvantaged and impoverished communities, um, there's a big crossover. And I think, you know, what's happening to people's mental health and their physical health after nearly two years of this is really magnified in prisons. And that means it's going to be really magnified as people, you know, move in and out of prisons in these communities. And that's a risk in itself. Beyond the COVID risk, the risk to people's mental health um, is huge and something that needs to be addressed. We can't just continually, yeah, as you say, try to police ourselves or surveil ourselves out of this epidemic. There has to be a more humane and human rights-focused approach to dealing with the pandemic. Karen, thank you so much for coming onto the
4: program. It's it's been great having you. Thanks, Maurice. It's always great to talk to you. Good on you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Keep up the good work. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly, about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical
2: Voices on air, subscribe now.
1: Go to 3cr.org.au
2: forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
1: A message from Victoria's community
0: sector.
3: I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are gonna die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking
2: forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
4: I really
3: want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on.
2: To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and
3: watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us.
1: Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector.
2: A 3CR supporter.
1: Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? or stopped and questioned by police for being outside. Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
4: Back with the Do Time show, and you just heard an interview with um, with Karen Fletcher from Fitzroy Community Legal Centre, and she was giving some very, very interesting insights about coronavirus and prisons, and looking about at the fact that it's important to have a health response rather than a police response. We're nearing the end of our show, but I just wanted to read out a little article. It's it's actually it's a bit old, but I, but I think. It, it is relevant um, in terms of Aboriginal deaths in custody. And it's written by Sydney Criminal Lawyers. By, um, and it's, a, it's a very interesting article about Tanya Day. Failure to press criminal charges over Tanya Day's custody death reflects wider injustice for First Nations. And this was by Paul Gregordi, um from Sydney Criminal Lawyers. And I won't be able to read all of it, but it'll just be a bit of an edited version. But it's just good to to just get a little bit of insight. um, And remember Tanya Day. Her anniversary is, after all, coming up in December, um, the anniversary of her death. So I'll start. Tanya Day. The decision to charge um, two Victoria police officers that the state coroner suggested could potentially be found criminally negligent in relation to the ultimately fatal treatment that Tanya Day received whilst being held in police custody has left a bitter taste in the mouth of many. The decision not to charge, sorry. None more so than the family that the, of the 55-year-old Yorta Daughter woman left behind. Victoria Police told The Age that after an assessment of the evidence and receiving advice from the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions, it would not be pressing charges against the two officers involved. It's extremely raw that Danny Walters and Edwina Whale receive no punishment at all for taking our mother away from us, Auntie Tanya's daughter April Day um, tweeted following the announcement. She added that Victoria Police and the DPP make a mockery of the justice system. In a joint statement, Miss Day's four children have suggested that the DPP had decided to let the officers off in relation to having left their mother to die on the floor of a police cell based on a flawed investigation that p- lacked independence. The Day family criticised the authorities for coming to the decision with no consultation with them or the broader Aboriginal community and they indicated further... That the one chance over the last 30 years to bring about justice in an Aboriginal death in custody case has been missed. A prejudicial system. Tanya Day died in hospital on the 22nd of December 2017 from a brain hemorrhage caused by several falls she sustained within the first hour of being placed in a cell at Castlemaine Police Station. After suffering these injuries, she was then left lying on the floor of the cell for three more hours. Prior to being taken to the lockup on 5th December, a conductor had woken Auntie Tanya on a train bound for Melbourne asking for her ticket. Having been drinking that day, the disoriented woman couldn't find it, so the conductor decided to call the police. This led her to her being placed in a cell under the watch of Sergeant Edwina Neal and leading senior constable Danny Walters. And after four hours of neglecting to follow cell monitoring protocols correctly, the officers realised Miss Day was in need of urgent medical treatment. I'll just stop reading that because we are nearing the end of our show. But um, just wanted to, to begin, um, I suppose, just doing a little bit more coverage on Tanya Day, um, given that her death in custody um, it, it did occur on the 17th of December. That was the anniversary of her death. Sorry, the 21st of December. So, um, and beginning some coverage for that. Anyway, um, it's still stage four restrictions. <laughs> There's been no announcement since the, uh, at all, in regards to lifting lockdown. So, keep up the good work, everybody. Goodbye from Marissa. Take care of each other. And we'll be going out soon with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella by the Rumpy Band. And stay tuned every Monday from 4 till 5 for the Do In Time show. Thank you. Bye.